Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome back to Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Vertel. My name is Aida Osman. And I have to thank Aida for provoking a conversation Here we go. with my father, Lee Vertel. I'm Louis Vertel. He's Lee Vertel. I'm going to need a, that explanation very soon. The pronunciation. Oh, Aida, you, don't, you, you missed the entire um, point when Louis revealed that his entire last name was a lie. Yes, right. Oh, you fancied it up for the people? That's right. It's pronounced Vertel. Oh, my he God. He changed it so he could get a job. Uh, he didn't want to be discriminated against. Well, you kind of went, well, why didn't you go full like Louis, Louis Vertel? Uh, well, that's the one white I'm not French. I got you. So okay. it didn't seem right. Okay. But last week, my dad texted me, Louis, what does au fait mean? <gasps> <laughs> and I had to explain to him that the term au fait, which you used in reference to Tina Fey yes, last yes, week. Yes, yes, which, which is still like, holds, still holds. Yes, which is, is like an old old term for cracker, basically. I cannot believe. Yes. I'm, so, I'm, I'm happy that, well, how did he feel? Was he offended? Was he offended? No. I mean, like, he, I think it was more like, he, he was wondering if it was a reference to a character or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, you know. uh, tell Lee I will never call him an au fait unless he has au fait behaviors. And that's, that's all I have to say. I, at this point, I think person. he's aware, but who's okay, to good. say? Yeah. Mm. Lee Vertle. Wow. They're going to change Uncle Ben Rice to Uncle au fait. That'll, Uncle au fait's rice. That, that'll make it better. And it has no flavor packet that comes with it. It's just the white rice. Just the white rice. (laughs) Is there a seasoning packet in this? No. (laughs) Like shaking the box and nothing comes out. Just the rice. (laughs) And you cook it in the microwave, not on the stove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it calls you the (laughs) N-word. We all learned, though. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also sure we taught some listeners who did not bother to go and Google Ofe. Yeah. Afterwards. Oh, definitely, definitely not. And I, I and there's been more blackface news, which I'm sure we'll get into later. So that'll be a fun conversation. Oh, we certainly will. Good. Blackface is now like a, a section of the newspaper. Like, oh, mm-hmm. turn to section the style it's section, the between, blackface component. Yeah. <laughs> in between B and C, right in between B and C, there's blackface. Uh, I actually think it's a tag on the Federalist. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I used to work at a, years and years ago, I used to work at a website where the woman who founded it, who was this kind of Romanoff looking woman who literally always wore furs and hats like she was in Murder on the Orient Express all the time. (laughs) Um, Her son is one of the creators of The Federalist or one of like the main editors or something. Anyway, at the time, I didn't know really what that was. And now since then, I'm only gaining in horror as the years go by. So it's (laughs) very exciting. (laughs) Uh Speaking of exciting, this is our Pride wrap up episode. Ugh. No more gay shit on the show after this. Thank say, we, God. Can, we can get right back to shame because uh, <laughs> we're on the clock. <laughs> <laughs> but we have two very exciting guests this week. Uh, we will be joined by Olympic skater. Adam Rippon. Olympic. And hero. Yes. yes. He's on our fucking keep it wall. One of the few men on our keep it wall. Right? That's right. That's right. I mean, men are not allowed. 
I still don't know how Rami Malek is on there. Yeah. I'm so sad that when I close my eyes, I can't even remember the Keep It Well. It's been that long. I know. I feel like Ugh. pure shit. Just want her back. I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I noticed. Wait, there is another. There is another man on the keep. Oh, Prince is on the wall. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. But we will also be joined this week by Laomi Judge on HBO Max's Legendary All Around Icon. Oh, and the the soul of that show, America's Best Dance Crew Icon. Yeah, one of a kind. Vogue Evolution. I pray to Laomi's altar. Are you kidding me? That's history, love. I loved Mario Lopez explaining that group every week. He's like, can this niche group turn it out? Like, thanks for, like, thanks for contextualizing voguing for me, Mario. Uh, we'll be right back with more Keep It. Like how I did that like a commercial, y'all. Yeah, the inflection was nice. I was nice. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back with more Keep It. In case you missed it, we did a Keep It bonus episode over the weekend in collaboration with HBO's Human by Orientation. Available now through the end of July, you can find our episode as well as performances by the cast of HBO's We're Here, Shangela, Bob the Drag Queen, and Eureka, Kim Petras, Janelle Monet, Cameron Esposito, and more at humanbyorientation.com. You'll hear a segment from the special a little later in the episode. Well, Pride Month is drawing to a close. And Thank God. Arizona just decided its water park should be too. And LA, <laughs> may, LA may be closing back up as well. <laughs> I would like to congratulate LA for entering phase one. We wow. did it. Wow. <laughs> Five months in or whatever, we are figuring it out. L.A. has been, like, inviting your friends to a thing, and then, like, you're realizing, like, oh, you got the date wrong, or the bar is closed, or you didn't actually get the concert tickets, and you're like, sorry, we, we, we got to do it later. Yeah, right. Yeah. Everything is pointless, and I keep I keep forgetting that we are in what we're in, because I'll drive somewhere, and then the grocery store will be closed early, or things will be... It's just... Guys, I don't know. <laughs> we really were self-congratulatory for a long time. Just yeah. it seemed like we were ahead of the curve. The virus doesn't spread normally here. Mm-hmm. You know, we were like an advanced species or something, and then it turned out we were just late to the party. Yes. No, truly the way that even driving around Los Angeles now though feels like nothing happened. Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. The slide back into, you know, like closing down bars again and then probably stay-at-home orders again is something that's going to have to really be like a massive order coming from yeah. Garcetti mm-hmm. or Governor Newsom just because you go to the grocery store, you you go out and like people are just not wearing masks in the street. Maskless. Utterly maskless. It's become a culture war whether or not you should be wearing a mask, which is insane to me. I'm very interested in this new group of people who suddenly have ailments that require that they cannot wear masks. I'm like, where did this sickness come from? Yes, yes. White people can't breathe now, too. (laughs) (laughs) Ira, can you guess the only mask battle that I think is worth waging? Mm, 
Does it involve Cameron Diaz and Jim Carrey? No, you're you're getting there. <laughs> I was like, is this? A cr- I thought it was maybe a critique on the mask singer, but I feel like you're beyond this. Uh, I'm still within it, but you're right. I should be beyond. Okay. That. Okay. Um, uh, it is that Cher deserved a Best Actress nomination for the movie Mask, which mm-hmm. didn't oh, happen oh. at the time. See, mm-hmm. yeah. I like that. I like that. There's always a thread of Oscar that's going to come out of you, no matter right. what. It's a sickness. That's correct. <laughs> it can't be solved. You should always count on it. Yeah. Eric Stoltz is one four-star movie as far as I'm concerned. Hey, let's settle down. Let's settle down. <laughs> well, that's the culture in Los Angeles, but what did we get into this week in terms of culture we consumed? Uh, shall I kick it off Go ahead. with something fun? We rarely get news like this in time for Keep It. N- naturally, it's bad news, but... The great Carl Reiner died this week. Uh, he was a trillion years old. But I'm so sorry for that. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but carry on. Yeah. I, I always feel bad when a celebrity that I adore does die. Mm-hmm. But I saw maybe two or three tweets this morning where they were like, Ugh, unexpected. This hit really hard. I'm like, do you know how old that man was? He was 88, I think. Maybe 88. 98. 98. What? Like, Same. my, my great grandmother is still alive, and she's like 96, 97. When she goes, it will not be a shock. <laughs> Could have happened this morning. <laughs> if you don't start preparing at age 70, like, it just, it's just a clock. It's waiting. It's counting down at that point. 70, Aida? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Jane Fonda's in her. 70s chill out but it's inevitable still uh i mean sincerely his adult (laughs) son has been a sitcom star for 50 years yes carl reiner was one of those legendary comedy writers at first he created the dick van dyke show he directed a whole string of steve martin's most famous comedies including all of me which i just saw again recently fabulous stars lily tomlin and steve martin and the credit sequence at the end is like the most life-affirming thing you will see all quarantine i recommend watching that i think it's on hbo max right now uh, but Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, The Jerk, uh, he released a bunch of comedy albums with his best friend, Mel Brooks. They had a whole sketch, The 2,000-Year-Old Man, that they would still do in their spare time yeah. because they had dinner together every night and watched Jeopardy every night together. And just like two days ago, Carl Reiner was tweeting a tribute to Noel Coward. Watching Jeopardy every night and tweeting about Noel Coward, bitch, this is how I'm going to go out. So I'm glad I have a fucking blueprint for when I'm 90-something. Uh, that's Good. gossip. The See, there it is. That's sad. Speaking of their hanging out, um, Alex Papadamus, um, journalist who I used to work for at MTV News, tweeted out an interaction between Brooks and Reiner in an interview and it was asking them about um, them watching TV together. Uh, Mel Brooks said that like almost every night he's got a wonderful housekeeper and cook, and we decide on a menu and a movie. And when asked what they watched recently, Mel Brooks said they watched The Peacemaker with Nicole Kidman and um, <laughs> George Clooney. And Mel Brooks is like, it's two and a half stars at most. Good performances, very silly, you know. And Carl Ryder says, we look for movies with the line, Secure the perimeter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Brooks follows up with, yeah, we like movies that say secure the perimeter and or you better get some rest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That is so f- – shockingly, that's so funny. Um, so I'm thinking about Carl Reiner. And by the way, the Dick Van Dyke show still holds up. And he eventually became a cast member on that show. He played uh, the host of the show Dick Van Dyke wrote for. 
Um, and by the way, Dick Van Dyke's still with Dick us. I love the Dick Van Dyke show. So uh, yeah. yeah, cherish I these legends the as uh, as we as we still have them. That was um, one of the shows that I watched nightly, just mm-hmm. because of Nick at Night TV Land. Um, <laughs> it is weird to think of it now in the concepts of what the youth are watching, making myself sound old. <laughs> but truly, when we were younger, Nick at Night TV Land had like. Dick Van Dyke and Bewitched and I Dream of Genie. And so it was like you were introduced to these classic sitcoms every night in a way that you aren't now, you know? Like no. You pull up streaming and you go look for The Office or whatever you remember was on TV like a few years ago, you know? Like if you didn't mm-hmm. see Ain't Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter, you're not going to go hunting for it. No, no <laughs> kidding. We're like the last generation that would learn about TV that was more than 20 years yeah. older than my birthday, you mm-hmm. know? So, uh, uh, and by the way, I just want to stick my neck out for Bewitched, too. Totally funny, totally holds up. Hilarious. Uh, I Even Three's Company was one of my favorite shows that my mom would let me watch with her as a child, and I, to this day, don't think anyone else will watch it beyond us, and it is hilarious. Hilarity. I called a friend with new curly hair in the quarantine and a mustache. I referred to him as Mr. Cotter and uh, <laughs> looked at me like I was crazy. See? New, <laughs> new curly hair. But I mean, what, what you're saying is people don't even know John Travolta's origins anymore. I mean, yeah. he's still mm-hmm. an active player in our lives. Come mm-hmm. on. Also, Aida, you may know Carl Reiner from the Oceans movies. He played Saul. Oh, well, then my condolences to the Reiner family. <laughs> <laughs> now, oh, she we won't now, now, we, now we got her. Now we got her. Okay, um, I did notice it. I did notice. Um, the, we Did you guys see that Kanye West has penned that 10-year deal with Gap? Which I have to laugh at for multiple reasons. One, they, they we talked about this before. I think they're going to make a billion dollars a year off of this deal over at the Gap. It's going to be Yeezy Gap. And also for any Kanye fans from the College Dropout album, he has a whole track where he talks about working at the Gap. And Bet you they're going to show off their token blackie. The, yes, exactly. He compared it to a slave shift. Okay. <laughs> like. And the first the first verse he says that he shoplifted continuously and incessantly from the gap. And then the second one, he critiques the gap for tokenizing him. And now look at him. And that's why I was saying this is the most Kanye shit I've ever seen, where somehow he's held this evil, vengeful spirit for the gap so much so that he's going to just take all their money. In a way, I'm almost proud of that. But at the same time, it's Kanye, so of course I'm glowering. Yeah, and also the clothes are gonna be like H&M with some neon in them. It's going to be like, go ahead, girl. Give us nothing. Give us absolutely nothing once again. I think it's clownery. Here's my thing. Uh, This goes to an issue that I've long had with Kanye West, that I will consider what some black people will see as progress, yes? And that is access to a white space and not really changing anything within that white space. We've seen Kanye with this before in the fashion industry, right? You know, yeah. where he used to constantly get mad about how his designs weren't taken seriously, you know, by like other houses and, you know, within fashion week, etc. And it was never really that he wanted an entryway for black people into the fashion industry. He just wanted an entryway for himself mm-hmm. into the fashion industry, you know? That is the whole reasoning behind his friendship with Donald Trump in the first place, you know, Um, wherever that is now. um, I guess now Trump is more friends with Kimberly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But um, 
that whole thing was just about like exceptionalism for himself, for the individual, yes? And this Gap thing seems more like it too. I mean, you talked about being a token black person at the Gap. You talked about shoplifting, as you said. You like compared working the graveyard shift, overnight shift there to slavery, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, on spaceship, on the college dropout. And now you have a partnership with the Gap. So... Is it okay for other niggas to steal? <laughs> right, exactly. From um, the gap, will they in turn have the token black person who works there now selling your shit? Right? So, like, are you going in and changing management within the gap, or is mm-hmm. this just about um, some itch you've had to be respected by the people who you felt disrespected you at one point, you know, which is sort of Kanye's ethos, you know? I mean, I feel yeah. like that's all. Last call on College Dropout is about, you know, and that's all about his Big Brother song with Jay-Z. You know, like, that whole mentality was about besting the people who underestimated you. I did not tweet a full drag of the gap (laughs) thing, you know, because, I mean, it would have been, like, something, something, can't use the master's tool to dismantle the master's house, et cetera. <laughs> wow, it's it's so nice to get this behind-the-scenes glimpse into a tweet of yours. Truly, the entering Iris drafts. <laughs> I'm like, look at me tweeting that while going to cash a check from NBC Universal talking about the master's house. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> when I was uh, in college, I had, or I think maybe high school, I had a green terry cloth. Um, shirt with like little almost cap sleeves, you know. You know. Oh, you so know how you've gay- always been this, okay? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, right? You know how gay people looked in like 2004. It's just, fu- <laughs> it's just funny to picture Kanye West probably having to wear that shirt, right? Like, because those people would stand out in front of the store wearing a shirt from the store. Anyway, funny image, Kelly yeah. Green. I worked at the Gap, Lewis, in Chicago. You did? Oh yeah, on you Michigan did? Avenue. Michigan you know Avenue. what? Might have been the same one that Kanye worked at. I wouldn't be too shocked. Look at you. I don't know if he worked at the Michigan Avenue one, but I worked at that one, and Oprah definitely came there during her red campaign. Mm. Oh, right. Yeah. That wait. No, wait. Was the red campaign also the like U two? Yeah. Yeah. Everything was red yeah. and had the word red in parentheses on the yes. shirt, and it's like. Mm-hmm. I'm not like a billboard for you, Bono. Like I don't know how I feel about <laughs> having to wear that, but okay. Yeah. Something that really impressed me this weekend was the BT Awards on Sunday. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, you know, I love watching the BT Awards because at this point they are more fun than the VMAs. I wouldn't say they usually are. Like, the BT Awards sometimes used to be um, a mess. <laughs> but um, in recent years, they've really, really been entertaining and really felt like they are still one of the like last bastions of um popular black culture in music and entertainment yeah definitely loved the feel of the award show on sunday uh, it was hosted by amanda seals <laughs> everyone's fave and um you know she hosted it from her home with a green screen mm-hmm. and what i loved is that all the performances were filmed you know like outside of a studio you know they weren't typical live performances and how they pulled this off i don't know i I don't get it i don't get it it is better honestly a hundred percent than what you would get before because first of all megan the stallion's performance was fucking amazing she did her new song um 
Girls on the Hood, that Easy E sample, and it was like this Mad Max performance. And then she shifted into Savage, and it was just like dancing on platforms, and it looked Flawless. like it was beyond Stallion Dome. I was like, okay, where's the new Mad Max? Um, where she can do a cover or like a song that samples We Don't Need Another Hero. I need it. Right. Exactly. And what's amazing about this is we're watching Meg Megan become into her own as a performer. Like I she wasn't dance she was dancing a lot prior, but now she's doing full heel toes, full orchestrated choreography. Like it, it looks absolutely amazing and more power to her. It was beautiful. I'm sliding off the chair thinking about it. So <laughs> <laughs> that performance was fabulous. And you're right. And like it was way more um production value than you would probably get from an award show. So it was this strange, like, should we not go back to that thing? Right. Right. Well, you know what? One performance I could have done without, and you guys know how I feel about Jonathan, Mr. DeBaby. Please. He did an entire song while he recreated the imagery of George Floyd's death with a white police officer kneeling on his neck while he rapped the first verse of a song. And I personally hated it, hated every second of that. I don't really see the value right now in him recreating that for a award show that is watched primarily by black people. Do you understand? And mm. I feel like if this were a different situation, if he was doing it for the Grammys, maybe that'd be a conversation worth having. But for this, it felt insensitive. Trauma that we didn't need to revisit. Yeah, and I'm sure it's trauma that he didn't get cleared by the family. Yeah, it's not a smart analysis of trauma, right? It's very, it's right? very base, you know? Um, leave that to Michaela Cole, all right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just started watching that. I'm Girl. loving her so far. Girl. I resist I mean, about talking about this show every time a new episode drops. Like, I have to stop myself from talking about it on Keep It. It's so amazing. I have started watching the episodes that have aired in the UK, so I am I'm so much further. I'm so much further along. <laughs> you didn't see my tweet. I, I subtweeted you. I don't know if you saw it. What did like, you tweet? <laughs> <laughs> I tweeted. I was like, I was like, how do I ever be getting the episodes before me? I hate this nigga, bro. <laughs> I didn't see it. No you didn't, oh, you didn't at me. I was, yeah, I was like, who does this nigga know? Like, where is he getting this stuff? So, 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 spill your little secrets if you, if you may. I'll send you the link. Okay, girl. Yes, like yes. Underground <laughs> Railroad, this shit. Thank you. Uh, thank you. This is, but, this is black activism right here. <laughs> but speaking of Megan coming into her own, I would just also lastly say that COVID and having to do these performances at home or in different spaces has really brought out a lot in some artists. And I would say another artist at the BET Awards was Chloe and Halle. Um, and they ooh, are they the, have, the queens of this. It's, wow. It is so wild to me that in less than a year, they have churned out what I would call so many iconic performances. And these are performances that when we're all just like gays hanging out like we do Lewis and we're like uh, drinking and watching music videos at a friend's house, you know, you'll be like, oh, pull up these Britney videos, pull up these Beyonce videos or whatever. And like the live performances, they're always like, oh, this one happened this year, that one happened next year, etc. The amount that they have produced just In within the past long. few weeks is yeah. wild. And a wealth. It seems like they're producing for exactly that kind of viewing experience, too. Like, people mm -hmm. want to gather around a music video. It's something you want to see again and again and again. And the eye-popping visuals, always, like, so brightly colored. Like, their synchronicity, you know, just 
so uh, rad. And I'm, I, you like that album way more than I do. I think it's like an okay album, yeah. but they are awesome. I think Ungodly Hour is great. Yeah, yeah, I really love the album. I really think that their next, co- their coming albums as they start to age and start to uh, mature together are going to be amazing. Right yeah. now, it's still not in my field of enjoyment. However, I don't know. Were you guys following Chloe and Holly like the beginning when they were making YouTube videos, Little Chillins? Yeah, it wasn't for me. Um, yeah, and I'm now, sure. Now, now, now I like their um, legal drinking age bops. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> they're yes. getting dirty. Yeah, I like what, that they swear. Yeah. You you tap you tap that explicit lyrics um, label on an album, and I am there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Parental guidance. <laughs> Lil Kim hardcore, etc. Yes, it, it oh, is goodness. still truly a nightmare when you accidentally click on the album on Spotify that doesn't have the explicit lyrics, like it's the edited version, and it would remind me when I would accidentally buy the edited version at like a Sam Goody. Oh, truly, Ooh. yes. No, that happens to me every once in a while. I'll have downloaded something, and it's like, oh no, but I want the version with the mean PJ Harvey. <laughs> Or whatever. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, once again, um, the BT Awards were just really fantastic this year. And that the baby performance aside, uh, mm-hmm. it really felt like it was speaking to black people about what's going on. Um, and that was nice to sit down and watch something that felt like it wasn't being filtered through. Um, white people are watching this so we got to yeah give them a reading list and we got to uh make sure we don't like get too angry you know mm-hmm. and beyonce looking more and more like her madame tussaud wax figure every every week yes <laughs> every just way too perfect way too good way too beautiful it's so weird to be one month ahead of a project we know is coming out from her like wow i'm anticipating something as opposed mm-hmm. to just waiting for her to like throw it at me <laughs> uh. All right, we'll be right back with Adam Riffon. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now... Is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite Lux home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And (laughs) I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside, and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. (laughs) 
After skating his way into our hearts and Mike Pence's nightmares during the 2018 <laughs> Winter Olympic Games in Pyeongchang, our first guest has won Dancing with the Stars and currently hosts the Quibi Show, This Day in Useless Celebrity History. Please welcome Adam Rippon. What an entrance. Hello. Hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that intro had it all. <laughs> it, tr- it truly did. If I could think of all of the intros I've um, ever gotten, this is absolutely top three. Good. <laughs> Thank you for ranking those for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, Adam, you are on, we, it, we talked about this earlier, in our, in our studio when we record in our studio. Mm-hmm. This was decades ago at this point. Right. But is this not the studio? Yeah. No, <laughs> uh, we have a wall full of like celebs we like, and there are only three men on them, and you are one of them. So, True. congrats to you. Yeah. I am welling up right now. <laughs> <laughs> Get close. I want to see the eyes to the camera so I can see. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. We, you can see oh, that more. Sarah <laughs> a bit dewy. Um, Lewis, but I do have to tell you that. Um, uh, you are a big reason of why I'm gay. You think so? <laughs> yeah, I, I do want to say that it's it was like a turning point of watching like social voguing on... Um, oh, verbal voguing. Verbal yes, voguing, right. sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was social in a way. Okay, yeah. um, hey everyone, I had a great time, I gotta go. Anti-social um, so, anti voguing. It was anti-social yeah. voguing. But yeah, the, I um, had no idea what you were saying because I'm stupid. Um, and um, But I was like... I think I'm like that. And <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, I'm terribly flattered. That's well, also so beautiful. Well before you were in the Olympics, I followed you on Twitter and what I noticed about you was it wasn't just like you were a little bit funny in the way that we give celebrities credit for being funny. Mm. It was you had a whole sensibility about yourself that was like not just sassy, it was like humor was clearly a part of your everyday, every moment experience. Yeah. And my my thing is, though, that was never initially part of your job description. You were obviously an Olympian. <laughs> my question is, why are you funny? Like, why are you this funny? It's very strange to me. Um, to everyone around me as well. Um, <laughs> I think uh, growing up, I always used humor as like a coping mechanism. And I always dreamed of like going in and in being involved in comedy somehow, but like I had no idea. Like, how the fuck was I gonna do that? Um, I was trying to, the only thing, my biggest focus was being as thin as possible and, uh, <laughs> and, and beating teenagers. Um, so that was, that was, you know, that was my main focus. Still is, obviously. Right. <laughs> I, I, can't lo- I can't lose my focus. Um, but it was, I always used it to like distract myself from being nervous and whatever. And then by the time I was like skating my best, I wasn't never going to win anything. I was going to be a really good teammate and I was a really good athlete, but I was never going to be like, oh, you might get, go-. like, I remember like even at the Olympics, like Savannah Guthrie, like God bless her soul and trying to do her own makeup on Zoom for her, you know, NBC right now too. So we're having like, <laughs> we're having, like a, a full moment for her. She's really trying to just do her own BB cream at home. And um, <laughs> I remember that like I had just skated, there were like 10 more people to go. This was after I won a medal for in in our team event so like there's 10 more people to go she's like 
what would it mean to like get one more medal? And I was like, Savannah, let's not do this on TV. And she's like, no, 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 no be serious with me. Like, what would it, wouldn't it be amazing? I'm like, if I got one more medal, it would mean that something terrible happens to the next 10 skaters. Like the building <laughs> will be on fire or something like that. And she's like, okay, back to you, Hoda. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, like, what do you, what do you want me to say? Um, but I always, I, yeah, I just, I've always loved, and I'm one of six kids. So it was always competing for like attention and who can make everyone laugh. Mm -hmm. Speaking of even just that interview, uh, I think you're like our first athlete on Keep It. Um, is that true? I think so. Yes. And 100%. I, I, I consider first Olympic athlete. I consider Easily. Jane Fonda an athlete. So you can leave that out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Sprinting over cop cars. <laughs> was definitely in the Olympics at one point. Um, I think the original but, ones in Greece. That's right. <laughs> yes. uh, but that Savannah interaction you described reminds me of a thing that I've literally always wanted to ask athletes. What is that like? You are literally giving your physical best and like straining yourself emotionally, mentally in um, a competition, and then you're done. And there's a reporter like right there asking like, well, how did that go? And, like, <laughs> what else do you want to happen? Like, every time I watch, like, a basketball game or, like, the Super Bowl ends, it's like, well, what do you think you're going to do to win? And it's like, that just seems like the basis thing to try and answer in that moment. The whole pageantry of doing interviews is, like, part of being an athlete. That, like, you know that you have them before events. You know that, like, you have them immediately after. Like, there's beads of sweat. And you're like, it was amazing. Like, I can grow from this. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, but, 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 but before is where the true, like, that's where the true showmanship comes. Because I lied about jumps that I could do. I lied about <laughs> how practice was going. Like, I would literally be coming from, like, a mental breakdown from the bathroom, dry my eyes, get into my car outside of the rink, which is next to a Taco Bell. And I would just sit in the car and they'd be like, how's everything going? And I'd be like, you know, like sniffle, sniffle, like, yeah, I've never felt better. Um, <laughs> God, good Lord. What could be worse? Yeah. It, I mean, I, it's just, especially in skating, because like it's one, it's individual and there's this like entertainment value to it as well mm -hmm. that like everyone has some sort of opinion. And I think like when I got older, I felt like I could be more in on the joke of like, all of this like kind of craziness that surrounds all of these questions and everything. And I, I think of that now being out of it for, I guess, almost three years at this point, but like two and a half. Um, I'm no math wizard. Um, <laughs> but uh, just being out of it, I see like how insane it is. But yeah, I, I mean, it's just part of it. You know, you get off the ice, blot, blot, and then you just start answering questions. It's just like, it's part of the pageant. Like all sports are the circus without animals. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it was a beautiful moment that you and Lewis just had when you said that you saw yourself in Lewis and the way that he was as a, as a gay man, as a funny gay man. Lewis, don't take that too. <laughs> I don't want you to no, I, I, I think I, I think that about you. 
I truly did. I mean, you know that episode of Family Guy where Peter Griffin is like so stupid, but he learns the words like shallow and pedantic and he like yes. walks in. Oh, yes. That yes. was me. Like literally yeah. not not having a clue anything that you were talking about, Lewis. Mm-hmm. Still don't. And walked- It's my honor to be misinterpreted and sort of glanced at by you. <laughs> but, but, but for you, like have you experienced since uh, coming out and being open about being gay that have you received any... I don't know how often you're around the little skating tots, but have you received any any uh, thank yous or any any good words? The short answer, yes. Uh, the long form is that right immediately after the Olympics, um, I was on a Stars on Ice tour, so like a, a skating tour. And um, we have like a bunch of meet and greets. And the, the interaction I had that really made me feel like, I guess people did kind of like catch on to my story was there was this like really young girl. She was cute. She had like her, you know, little denim jacket. She had some rainbow pins on and stuff. I didn't really think anything of it. She was just very nice. And maybe two minutes later, her mom came over to me and her mom was crying. And um, she told me that her daughter was like, had no friends at school. She was very quiet. She wasn't talking to anybody in her family. And then they watched the Olympics together and she saw me skate. And then she had all of these questions about like what being gay was. And she like went down this like rabbit hole of trying to figure it out. And then within like a month or a few weeks after the Olympics, she came out to her family. And she's like, she's been completely, she's like a different girl. I mean, that's amazing. Cause truly like I came out cause I didn't give a fuck. And, and I wasn't like, I'm going to change the world. I was like, I'm going to piss people off. And so. <laughs> While that is an awesome story, I mean, like, you must hear things like that a lot. And that would be incredibly overwhelming to me. I mean, just h- how do you sit with all these stories? Because you're somebody who, when you appear on TV in whatever form, Dancing in the Stars, the Olympics, whatever, my reaction would not be, I have questions about gayness. It's, oh, here are all the answers about gayness. <laughs> you know? So is it like to take on the emotional weight of all these people who are seeing probably something they've never seen before in certain parts of the country? Is that like draining? I think that it's it's all within our own like realm of perspective of like it's taking them one on one, not so much being like, I you know, I don't have the weight of the world on my shoulders. But like if I'm like talking to someone one on one, I can I really feel like I can connect with someone. Even people like will message me on Instagram or something. And they'll just, if they write something that's like pretty heartfelt, I always feel compelled to like write something just as heartfelt back. Um, and what I mean by that is when someone just writes to me, hey, and I'm like, I, I should write a, no- I should <laughs> a truly back. write a novel. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that um, there obviously was like, there were less eyes on me before Olympics and after it's, uh, there are more, but um, I think that I just try to do everything for the same reasons I did anything before. Cause if I, if I really like it, um, you know, I, I might say things that are like off the cuff, but I don't ever say anything that I don't like think about. And I think that's just the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even just speaking of like the draining point of um, having fans looking up to you, you know, I mean, like you also have to deal with, just like this being the one like gay person, you know, like mm-hmm. having this lightning rod of like politicians, you know, or like um, 
evil um, Russian skaters, uh, <laughs> you know, um, you know, constantly just like using you um, as the person to spew hatred at. How do you reconcile, you know, with the fact that like I guess I'm the person who has to deal with this? When I look in the mirror, I like can look back and be like. Of course you're the person that's getting spewed at. And like, and yeah, and I can take it. Like, and then, I, but if I start to think like any, especially like within my sport, like I think that a lot of people don't have like a, a really thick skin and it really doesn't, yeah, it hurts for a second, but at the end of the day, I, I truly, it, it doesn't, if I'm doing things for the right reasons, like I said before, like I'm not bothered if somebody doesn't agree with those. When I was at the Olympics and it was sort of, it, I, I mean, really amplified. You do live in like a bubble when you're there because you just don't like have a the true idea of like what's going on. But when I was there and it was just, everything was like blowing up. Like I couldn't open any of like Instagram or Twitter or anything because they were just like lock up because it was just like, I was getting so many followers and so many people were writing at me and mm. which was, you know, kind of surreal. But I just reminded myself that like all of that was just like, in this little box, which was my phone. Like that wasn't real world. Like my real world was that I was living in like a three bedroom apartment in Korea with five other people who were having mm -hmm. nervous diarrhea. Like that was, <laughs> that was <laughs> my real world. And so I, yeah, that's, that's what I focused on there. I mean, I'm sorry that most of the messages that came to you were um, from my best friend's mom, Sally Fields. So, uh. <laughs> oh, right. I forgot all about that. Yes, yes. Oh. She yeah. and her goddamn son, our friend, may have um, crowded your timeline. A bit. <laughs> I know. I mean, like, everything during that time, I think, because it was, it, I mean, everything was, like, so surreal. It was like Sally Field was tried to set me up with Sam. And then within the same breath, it was like Britney Spears was like, I really hope you do well. And I was like, I, I hope you're doing well. <laughs> it was just like bizarre. It was like anything could happen. And then like, I remember one of the things that I was like, this is so like everything going on right now is so funny where it was like, I think it was just because it was a political thing to say that like it was like Hillary Clinton wishes Adam Ripon at the Olympics. It was like an article on the Hill. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what is life looking like for you now? I mean, I, I imagine dancing and skating is a huge outlet for you. And if we're living in a type of confinement, where are you getting out of this? I imagine also that you have a, a larger awareness, athletes, especially awareness of your body than I do. Like I can't really feel my toes right now. So I just want to know like what, how is it for you? Where are you working out? Where are you dancing? Here's the thing. Um, we aren't that different. I can't, <laughs> I can't feel anything from the knee down. <laughs> um, and I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to either. I think like skating ha has become like an outlet for me. But I think the biggest thing is like when you're an athlete, you're so used to like being physically exhausted at the end of the day. Like your body hurts. You're so, you've exerted so much energy and that I think what I do now, which is mostly just like comedy stuff or like writing and things like that, um, that it's mentally draining, but it's not the same sort of exhaustion that you feel when you've like physically exerted yourself and that you still have like energy is a very weird thing. And it took, it, it, I'm still sort of like 
kind of trying to cleanse myself from feeling that like needing those endorphins to like pump so intensely. But every time I can get to the rink, it's always just like, it'll always feel like home. I think for like when I was retiring, it was a little bit bizarre because I couldn't skate without like training. Like I was trying to go to the Olympics, but ever since I've gained like 30 pounds since the Olympics, it's been a lot easier (laughs) not to train that way. And now, by the way, you are hosting my dream project, which is called This Day in Useless Celebrity History. First of all, you are definitely taking a job away from me with this project. I just want to say, <laughs> specific to me, I'm angry. Um, even a cursory look of what you've done on YouTube and stuff, you've had videos about celebrities and like lots of celebrity humor. How did this project come to be, and why are you seemingly so obsessed with pop culture? Um, well, I've always loved pop culture because it's like my Tolstoy. It's, <laughs> you know... Um, <laughs> Because it seems also surreal. It's like the the pageantry of celebrity and all of that is it's so like fascinating to me. Um, but more than anything, I love to commentate on things, and I love to just I, I my dream job I think is to like be able to like sit down and talk and basically like shoot the shit with someone. Um, but this project was the first time that I was actually able to like get and sit into like a a writer's room and like write jokes with everybody and it was so much fun and it was something that I was like I'm so like grateful and and lucky to do (laughs) (laughs) but just to be clear on this show uh, which I haven't seen yet it's not out yet is careful all of everybody's Quibi subscription is ending soon there we are Uh, but like Lindsay Lohan is on this correct yeah. Oh, oh my God. Can we take, a, first of all, I just want a moment of silence for Lindsay Lohan <laughs> being in Dubai. Because <laughs> we did this, uh, we basically to, um, you know, the magic of show business, we sent her questions and I recorded me asking them to her and then we made them look like a Zoom call. Spoiler alert. Got it. But she is on the show. So we asked her a bunch of questions and it was truly like a case study in someone looking good, looking really good. She looked hydrated. She had at least, you know, she had her 32 ounces of water. I don't know if she drank it or if she just, you know, used it in the shower or whatever, but she, but she was- The water interacted with her. (laughs) Yes. Um, But yeah, the the elements were, you know, um, somewhere around her. So she, she's a fascinating being. Truly, she's very fascinating. So it was just like listening to her answer these questions. It was like, I've never seen anyone- literally do gymnastics around like, hey, how is it going in Dubai? Giving me a, basically 10 minutes of how it was going in Dubai. Instead of just, good. <laughs> it was truly like, well, you know, and, and she does have that like slight accent, which where is that from? <laughs> Let me travel there. Let me have that. Every 15 years or so, we do need a celebrity with a mystery accent. You know, like it was used to be Madonna, and then it yeah. was like mm-hmm. Gwyneth, and now it's mm-hmm. Lindsay. Yeah. It is mm-hmm. Lindsay. I really hope someone gets some sort of mystery Australian accent. That is my, it's all, because it's always some sort of, it seems, it's seemingly a suburb out, outside of like Cambridge. And it's like, <laughs> it's always sort of like um, England inspired. I really want someone to go. Down under. <laughs> oh, Australian has become the resident, like, gay accent. It's the one we care the most about. You know, yeah. if you want to, like, set my endor- endorphins on fire, you play a Jackie Weaver interview. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Something from Darling Nay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Darling Nay is a reference to Naomi Watts. <laughs> yes. uh, 
Uh, thank you so much for being here, Adam. It's so my pleasure. You guys are so fantastic. I'm so happy to be here today. Yeah. Among human beings I have met or will ever meet, you are one of the slays of all time. So yes. thanks so much for being Adam Rippon. Well, I hope yeah. I can come into the studio one day and see my photo. Yes, you're the third Definitely. person from the wall to be on the show. So, you know, Congrats. We've, had, we've had Jane and Angela Bassett. Some say I was the Angela Bassett of figure skating, so <laughs> <Right>. that <laughs> checks out. Debbie Thomas has words. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thanks, Adam. Coming up next, a special Pride segment. Listen, we could spend our time talking about how Terry Crews is an idiot who keeps tweeting about how he doesn't understand the Black Lives Matter movement and thinks black supremacy is a thing. But instead, Louis Aida and I collaborated with HBO's Human by Orientation for their Pride stream. We wanted to share a snippet of that conversation where we talk about Pulse, the importance of the community coming together, and our favorite Pride moments. So enjoy this clip and happy pride. You know, feel like um, I would obviously be taking part in pride with a lot of my friends right now. And that is one thing that I do miss. Um, The whole community of pride um, has felt like it has vanished a bit in the midst of COVID. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. one thing I do like, just just because of I, I when I worked at MTV News a few years back, um, I wrote a piece on the first Pride after the Pulse nightclub shooting, and um, yeah. that one that one in Los Angeles felt a little sort of similar to the um, pre- the one that was the march that ended with everyone there, right? You know, it was sort of somber, but it was also sort of hopeful and felt like a little defiant in a way. Um, And it's unfortunate that these things have all been happening one after the other and truly a progression of where um, this country, unfortunately, is politically um, moving with a lot of hatred going on. But um, that pride reminded me a lot of that pride in um, 2016. Yeah. When Pulse happened... Obviously, it was perpetrated on the queer community, but hearing news like that, no matter who you're around, is incredibly isolating. And you're wondering, you know, why you feel so unsafe and, um, you know, whether me, I'm like, a, a, you know, generally speaking, a privileged person who gets to do what he wants in life. Like how much homophobia I've ignored um, mm-hmm. due to convenience um, and actually reuniting with, you know, a community and centering our anger somewhere and realizing you're not alone has been uh, not just helpful, but like, I'm so thankful for it. I'm so thankful people are um, ready to organize um, and galvanize uh, uh, so loudly and so effectively. And I feel like um, LA has done a lot of that. Yeah, and especially, you know, to go back to the 2016 of it and the, the way this came again, the Black Lives Matter kind of coincided with everything that's going on. And it it, kind of adds to my fear that I've been having of going outside and the fear that I had four years ago after the pulse shooting about existing and being loud and being gay and being queer and out. But um, it reminds me the importance and 
the longevity, hopefully, of the internet and the ability for us to have these moments and have these conversations in a very out and loud way without having to deal with the physical implications that might happen if we step outside the house. So, you know, it, it, it's it's a thing to balance out, but I do, I feel very fortunate. I feel very but it is also, that we have also just a reminder that we, we should be um, living in these moments, right? You know, like it, it is fearful to step outside the house um but we're we're grateful for the people that do you know and um we're even seeing that in protest you know like the people who are making themselves most visible uh are the people who we end up getting to thank for the community at large being able to be visible you know and i think if anything this um pride was really sort of reminding a lot of people that um as i said before you know um a lot of visibly trans people, trans people of color, black trans women, um, Latinx trans women have been out there on the front lines and they are the, the ones who are most visible and sort of face a lot of the violence in our community. And I think that um, if anything, it's told us that, you know, we may be afraid to be leaving our homes right now, but they're, they're always afraid. Um, and we should be showing up more and being more visible in spaces to protect them. Yeah, you can't underestimate the power of, uh, this is like a cliche phrase now, but like putting your body on the line in certain ways, mm. you know, by existing, it feels like people are just doing that. But in, like to channel it specifically and to like get your community of people, get your friends into it and to show up is just important. It's it, it's a version of doing something. It's the, be it's the beginning of a movement, but it's doing something. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Sorry, to support those people and then getting creative yourself if you are at home and figuring out how you can help be gay in the comfort of your own home. <laughs> right. Um, and that has involved, you know, like opening your purse. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you yeah. have that privilege to donate money to um, specific charities that help um, trans women of color, you know, um, even if it's things with just... Um, Helping people with housing, you know, helping people with um, gender reassignment surgeries, you know, it's, it's things like that um, that are big, monumental help in people's lives. That is just a small thing to you, no matter how much you can donate. Also, looking up the places you can donate is a, a weird cheat to learn about experiences you otherwise wouldn't have known about. Like when you, are, you know, look up like effective places to donate for like, um, uh, at-risk black trans sex workers you then learn about their experience like it's mm -hmm. it, it's it's a way to get the sort of wikipedia version of things that we have probably otherwise looked over you know so if you're looking to be lazy almost <laughs> donate see yeah I'm, I'm helping the lazy as the what are some of the, all of your favorite moments from just like pride in general you know not talking specifically we talked about pulse um pride that one we talked about this recent one but like you know what is maybe like a memory you remember from your first pride well uh this has to be about eight or nine years ago i'm 33 i moved to la when i was 22. the first real pride i ever experienced was here so this was maybe my second or third one uh i i looked forward to pride because it was an opportunity to hang out with people i like people i admire and um you know not just be politically present, but also like celebrate yourselves in the street, right? Like that alone is, is, is worth having an event about. 
But that year, my mom, who's from, uh, who still lives in the uh, house I grew up in, uh, in a suburb of Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, she was in town. And a part of me thought, damn it. Like, I can't just have the normal experience with my friends. I have to do something with my mom, who I love, my love. But I was like, can I incorporate her into this without like completely weirding her out, uh, without um, having to explain everything for her? Um, you know, uh, I come from people who are rad, but deeply wholesome and like, you know, offended by things like adultery in movies. So, you know, I had no idea how much pride in LA would need to be um, explained <laughs> to her. And she, she showed up, my friends were like, bring your mom, like, who cares, whatever, we'll see how it goes. And she mm -hmm. came, I have, that was one of the most fun times I've ever had in LA, like to just introduce the idea of pride and uh, to not just my mom, but introduce her, introduce myself to the idea that pride is also such a family environment, actually. There's families all over the place. People bring like their kids, their relatives come into town. You know, it's 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 a way to unite with everybody. And my mom got to meet all of my friends in a super celebratory environment. So I look back on that as um, a, a triumph that I did not expect, that I was I was not cool enough to expect. Yeah. I, uh, my first pride experience was the first year of college. I had just reckoned, I had just like dealt with the, 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 the truth of my life, which was that I was gay. And uh, I had a couple friends that were also queer and we were trying to figure out how to get to Pride and how to get to Pride in a city like Lincoln, Nebraska that doesn't have a flourishing gay community that is also out and proud and willing to march up and down the streets. We do have a Pride and we did have a Pride in that year. However, my Muslim mother had, she was not gonna let me go to that. And she was not gonna even let me wear what I wanted to wear. The second she saw me wearing rainbow anything, she clocked it and was like, okay, you're, you're not leaving. You're not leaving the house. None of this is happening. And then there was the same situation that kind of happened with my other friends too, who had very pious parents that weren't going to allow them to march and to walk with the pride parade. So my friends and I all snuck out in the middle of the night and they <laughs> we went to another friend's basement and we sat there and just shared our, our own pride stories, our own stories about being gay. First time we realized we were queer and we built that community ourselves in a world where we weren't even allowed to celebrate our queerness. And it was just the most beautiful moment and then that is the next year we snuck out and, you know, we were smart enough to not wear rainbows, so we didn't have our parents couldn't clock it. And we took our ass over to the parade and we marched with the, the six people in Lincoln, Nebraska that was marching with us. So it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I yeah, hope there were things next to wheat-based costumes in the Lincoln, Nebraska uh, gay pride parade. Uh, my first one was um, Chicago, actually. Um, wow. It, it was, um, I was an undergrad there at Loyola Chicago, and um, I had been out, you know, for like a couple of years prior, but it was um, really a friend who, um, a friend came out later in college, and um, he wanted to go to Pride, uh, his first one, and then I sort of realized that I hadn't really gone myself, um, so I went with him, and um, that experience, you know, being on uh, being on Halstead in Chicago was um, a fun experience, and it was just so um, it was just so fun for the first time, you know, seeing that many um, gay people just out, you know, right. um, seeing, seeing seeing gay men, seeing you know um, lesbians, trans people, um, seeing families there, you know, it was the first time it really felt like. Being gay was something to me, but beyond just like, oh, this thing that I am that, you know, like sometimes you have to let people know 
about when they're talking to you, right? Mm, right. No, when my mom first came to LA, I think I was walking with her down Wilshire. Maybe we we're going to LACMA or something. She just goes, everybody's just gay here. Like, <laughs> just like oh. it's they're just, they're just happening, you know? They're not like special events really anymore. <laughs> Coming up next, we talk to the icon, Laomi. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Today we are joined by a living legend, the crown jewel of New York Ballroom, who first gained national attention on America's Best Dance Crew, and who has since been a choreographer and actress on FX's Pose, currently a judge on Legendary on HBO Max. Please welcome the one and only Laomi. Hello. 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 Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Laomi, this TV show could not be any better. I find every week I'm obsessed with a different judge or a different crew, or I can't believe they brought that, or I can't believe she said that. <laughs> what has been the most surprising part of the fun of the show for you? Honestly, for me, the most exciting thing about the show is how people are taking it in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm loving how much education people are getting from this, how much inspiration people are getting from this, how much hope and just all the love that we're receiving, the community alone, it's so beautiful. I feel like that's the thing that stands out to me the most. Being a part of the show overall for me has been an amazing experience. I would have never thought that after being a part of the ballroom scene for about 17 years that I would end up, you know, being on a show judging this ballroom competition. And it's something that is so surreal. Mm-hmm. You are the judge to me. You're my favorite <laughs> judge on the show. I love watching. I Thank like you. I didn't even know there was three other ones. I'm just finding out actually. But I, <laughs> I did I did want to ask you about I mean since you are the person that comes from ballroom experience, how much of your judging experience in the beginning of the show was teaching or explaining things to Jamila or Law or Megan the Stallion, you know, like what was that like in the beginning phases? Well, for me, I love the fact that they were so receptive mm-hmm. to actually learning. And, you know, that's what I'm there for. I'm there to teach them. And I loved how they, they actually cared to understand. They were asking questions and they were, you know, like, if they had an opinion and I'm like, well, no, that's not what the category is. They would ask <laughs> me, like, why? <laughs> you know? And that's something that's important because a lot of people, they come into the barroom scene and they see these categories and they get so awed by the fact or, you know, just the excitement of it, of the presentation and they forget what the category is. So mm-hmm. that's something that working with them has mm-hmm. been so easy. It's been so cool. And I love how open they are. Also, it's it's important to know their opinion as well because they're there for a reason. They're, they were chosen for a reason. So it's, it's a match and match kind of thing. I'm mm-hmm. teaching them about, you know, ballroom and stuff, but I'm also learning 
and also finding ways to see what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I read an interview with you recently that I thought was so interesting because you talked about the difference between what your style of voguing was, which was more about agility and athleticism compared to what was more in vogue within voguing, which is mo- kind of more about like mm-hmm. feminine posturing and so- uh, things like that. Can you talk about just how you felt you had to fit into the ballroom scene and, and what it took to sort of, you know, make a mark? Mm-hmm. For me, I never felt I needed to fit in the ballroom. And that's something that made me so different from a lot of people who come into ballroom. They come into ballroom with the idea of, oh, I'm going to become legendary. I want to be known. I want to be famous in the ballroom scene. I didn't look at it like that. For me, I fell in love with voguing. It was a way for me to release stress and release the the complications that I was going through in my mind and dealing with my own transness, being young and stuff. So I used Vogan as a way of like expressing myself. So when I came into the ballroom scene, it was so different to what they were used to. For me, I just educated myself on what Vogan was. I found out what creates Vogan, which is the five elements of old. It's hand performance, catwalk, duck walk, spins and dips floor performance. So it was all about perfecting these elements, but still staying true to myself and how I allowed the music to incorporate what I wanted to my body to show. And that's something that it was hard because for a long time, they were very shady about it and had to battle legends and show them in that way. Like, oh yeah, I can hold down with the, with the, with the mean dog too. Mm -hmm. I want to ask about, um, you know, being in ballroom back then and then also having this huge sort of moment being on America's Best Dance Crew, you know? Like, what was that like, you know, really sort of putting ballroom and voguing out there in a way that maybe people hadn't seen since, um, you know, Paris is burning? You know, I feel like I actually discovered voguing through that show before Paris is burning. Mm-hmm. And it, it was such a great introduction to the culture. But watching it back now, um, you know, I'm like, <laughs> there are definitely like wild moments of, you know, like Mario Lopez, like explaining like basically what voguing is to like people who don't know who it is. And then like, of course, you know, the uncomfortable like one judging moment you know from like little mama you know where she um (laughs) just completely talks um horribly about like what it is being a trans woman um and not in a way we would speak now of course for me it was tough because when when we went on america's best dance crew it was solely just to show the world where voguing came from Mm -hmm. around that time you started seeing like my signature hair move the lolly being shown by all these artists then you started seeing the dips being seen in all these videos and we're like wait why aren't we the ones doing this mm-hmm. so when we went on america's best dance school the first week that we did the first performance that was kind of something that for us was the eye-opener because we kind of felt like we were going to be receiving negative energy because of being of color because being a part of the lgbt community and us being the first ones to be out there and then for me being a, a trans woman having to be on a platform like that and having to showcase you know my life that was tough for me but we knew that it was beyond that the first week that we were on there we received so much love mm-hmm. and people were so open about what the ballroom scene was and that made us feel so proud any moment after that really didn't matter. Like the fact that we made it to the top five, that was a blessing. Mm-hmm. But it was that first moment. It was about that impact that we made that first night. And ever since then, I've just been 
just working hard and just keeping ballroom alive and making sure that I find different ways to incorporate my artistry in ballroom, but also bring it to the mainstream where it's accepted in the art form. You're also a choreographer and actress on Pose. And something I was uh, very interested to learn was that it really required, as you mentioned earlier with us, extra research about how voguing would have been 30 years ago because people don't understand that it's really changed. You know, what what was Mm -hmm. emphasized was really changed. Do you have favorite discoveries from learning about 80s voguing? The thing about performance back in the 80s is that it was more about old way that's the category that they first started with and old way was more so inspired by martial arts it was inspired by poses in the vogue magazines it made my education even stronger and it's like it's a lot of research it's so much that goes on in the ballroom mm-hmm. how do you even um go about um digging into the culture of old voguing and old ballroom, you know? Like, is it, was it a lot of um, talking to people who were still around who were in there? Um, Are there, like, archival footages of things for you to watch of past ballrooms? Mm -hmm. Well, still to this day, they have the category old way. So there are still Uh people who have been legends and icons for, like, maybe 20 years ago Mm -hmm. who still compete. I've been a part of ballroom for a long time, so I have seen old way throughout ballroom Mm -hmm. the difference was learning that style Mm -hmm. i taught myself the style just so i can be able to teach it to someone else (laughs) as an artist i learned to appreciate old way whereas when i first came into the ballroom scene i'm like what is that we don't want to do that and i'm like over here vogue in 3d going going on fast Mm -hmm. forward (laughs) so it's it, it, it made me appreciate where um, voguing started and it made me even fall in love more with old way itself so teaching it to people and seeing because as a teacher I'm, I, I teach voguing so seeing people learning vogue femme it's so beautiful but to see someone learn old way it's powerful it's a different it's a different lane well speaking of when you were when you were first getting into voguing getting into ballroom what years was that around and what what would you say was it was like then as opposed to how it's like now and how did that interest start for you when i came into the ballroom scene it was around 2003 Mm -hmm. that's when i walked my first ball but i got chopped (laughs) so then i left for like a whole year (laughs) i left for like a whole year and when i came back i already had started my transition then so i was i I was able to introduce laomi and it was the same ball because it was the annual ball so when I walked in the year after, I won my first trophy. Mm. Um, mm. The, the style difference between what I brought into the, the ballroom community and what was out then, it was that back then it was more about more femininity. It was more about hair, like hair flips and more breaking the wrist and actually taking time to tell your story with your body. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to how I started voguing, it was more so an emotion. And it was something that they were not used to. There are two different styles of Vogue Femme. It's Vogue Femme, soft and feminine. And then there's dramatics. I was more so on the dramatic side, but it was so different. Back in the days when they did dramatic, it was more so showing rage in a sense, but mm. in, con- in, a, in a controlled manner. But I didn't know that. I didn't know control. So <laughs> my thing was very wild. Same, I was just out there. I was a tornado out there just destroying stuff. But little by little, you know, I taught myself control and I'm able to do the things that I'm able to do now. <laughs> uh, uh, this show is just incredibly addictive. My thing about uh, Legendary is what is it like to go from having 
no shows about voguing to having what looks to me like an incredibly expensive production that, you know, that looks it's like Rockettes level lighting and uh, spectacle every single week. Is it ever overwhelming just how crazy every episode looks? I mean, I'm a part of ballroom and if yeah. you have been going to balls as long as I have been going to balls. The only thing different is the production, honestly, because yeah. the energy and the the aesthetic of ballroom is always going to be there. I feel like the most in, in, intriguing thing about the show overall is the fact that these people are giving the ballroom scene the proper tools to create the productions that they've always wanted to create. If you ever do research on ballroom, there has been so many beautiful moments, beautiful productions put together by us in times where we didn't really have the right tools. So being given the right tools now, that's why you see what you see. A lot of it, it's, you know, they're providing the production, but the ballroom people themselves and the competitors are providing what they want to produce. So that's what's important. They're putting together their own productions. They're putting together their music down to their wardrobe. It's all that. And that's like authentic. You can't get that anywhere. And that's why every episode is so different. And you're going to be rooting for one house one week and then mm-hmm. feel like a traitor the next week because you might be like... Wow, I like this. I am definitely always Team Lem Van, um, but then it's oh, all. You live for the Lem I Van. live for them. I live for them. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, I I do want to ask too about the show. Um, where does the um the audience come from? Because um, the audience, like at point, seems like they at least are familiar with ballroom. Like some of them look like they are maybe friends and like family or members of the houses um, watching um, the people that they know compete or were they purely just people brought in um, by HBO? No, the crazy thing is that this is why I'm so thankful for Scout Productions and HBO Max. Not only did they want to you know put a spotlight on the ballroom scene but they wanted to do it in the most authentic way and they have been doing that from the from the beginning from the writers to you know the people who are working behind the sets and all of that the people from hair and makeup all of that the people that are in the audience they are a part of the community they are a part of the ballroom scene so you get to see the real authentic energy in the building and that's something that's beautiful you would have never thought that you know, Scout Production and HBO will go that far to make sure that everyone's included. Mm -hmm. This is something I'm always interested in asking the people who come on the podcast because the world has changed so much and, you know, how do we do the things that we love? What is day-to-day like for you? you? How are you getting to express yourself in a way that is reminiscent of ballroom or dancing now? (laughs) Well, inspiring the world, honestly. Just being myself, inspiring, sharing my story, being visible, showing people that I'm human first. That's something that's important. A lot of people, they see you on these platforms, they see you doing these things and they forget that you're human first. And that's something that I make sure that, you know, my followers and everybody who looks up to me, they know that I want them to get to know me. That's something that for me, it's important. You can love my artistry. That's amazing. But when you get to know me and you get to know my story and you get to know why I am where I am now, that's the that's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Borum has taught me always is to stay true to myself. I have a question just about the competitors on Legendary. So have you seen a lot of these people perform like over the years, like tons and tons of times? I'm sure there's some new talent in there too. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure you have a, a longstanding background with a few of these people. Yeah, that's the crazy thing. I got to see some people that I've seen in the barn scene for a long time, people that I've known personally. I um, There were people on the show who I've taught 
You know, there are people in the show who I've battled. So there was so many different. And of course, there was a lot, a lot of new talent. And for me, it was more so about seeing the growth and seeing what these houses can create and how they how they choose to incorporate whatever the house stands for into their performances and their productions. Mm -hmm. What what does the um, future look like for you in terms of what you think ballroom can do, where it should go? You know, I mean, this show is on now and we see some houses, and I'm sure there are plenty of other houses who would love to be on in future seasons. Um, Mm -hmm. But do you see people watching this show like across America being like, I want to form my own house. I want to find ballroom in my city. The crazy thing is that it has already happened. Mm -hmm. That's been going on for so long. Ever since America's Best Dance Crew, honestly, a Mm -hmm. lot of that stuff has been happening. I've been fortunate to have been traveling. I've been traveling a lot overseas, internationally, like everywhere, where I've watched so many communities, so many borough communities be created, so many houses be created, even new houses. Because, mm-hmm. you know, nowadays overseas, they have people who have created their own house. It's not even, it doesn't even have no even attachment to the U.S. Mm-hmm. ballroom scene when it comes to, you know, the longevity and the iconic houses and the legendary houses. And that's something that it's never going to change. I feel like people are going to always be inspired. The thing about this show specifically is that you get to see how much hard work it takes and how real it gets. A lot of times, you know, these shows, they like to edit things and they make and they make it, they try to make it TV and they try to make it good for TV. When it comes to the ballroom scene and when it comes to all these different stories of all these in different individuals, it's so diverse that there's no way to water it down. No matter who's going to tell their story, you're going to inspire somebody in the world. Mm-hmm. It is crazy how many stories you get just per episode. Like mm-hmm. I learned, you, yeah. you learned so much about like different types of experiences to have and and also, I've talked before about how Project Runway was an underrated reality show and it gave you like seven queer people in a season. Mm-hmm. On this show, you are getting dozens. And also, <laughs> for example, they are all hilarious in their own ways for the most part. It is even like the diversity of humor alone is crazy. Mm-hmm. Do you have favorite personalities on this show besides, you know, your own, which is explosive? <laughs> <laughs> honestly, I, I love ballroom overall. So honestly, every single person... Being given that moment to shine and to give off their personality to me, I love it. I don't. I didn't have a favorite because I know some of these people and some of the people are new. What I love is how raw. I, I live for the rawness of it, like the shadiness, mm-hmm. the little side marks that the girls yeah. is given, like all of that. That's my favorite part because that's borrowed. <laughs> like you would think, you would think that these people are enemies because of how thick the shade that they throw to each other on the floor. But as soon as they get off the floor, yeah. they're girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're like, sis, yeah. you know? And that to me, it shows ballroom. And mm-hmm. there's no other way to put it. It goes to show what how ballroom really is. You're going to get people that are funny. You're going to get mm-hmm. people that's going to make you cry. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to be inspired. You might be turned off. You know, people mm-hmm. want to show that you're like, oh. <laughs> But that's ballroom for you. I feel like that has always been... Um, just, you know, really just like a paramount of, you know, like um, black and like Latinx, like just queer culture, you know, like the idea that um, we can throw shade, you know, and like it, it's still love afterwards. And, you know, it's it's nice introducing people to the idea that, um, 
you can have fun with it, you know? I mean, I wish mm -hmm. like a show like American Idol or something had people being able to throw <laughs> the shade that they want to throw at a singer, being like, she didn't hit that note, <laughs> you know, and still loving each other at the end. So it feels real. Mm -hmm. Thank you for um, so many years just educating us um, mm -hmm. on Ballroom and Vogue and um, continuing to put thank yourself you. out there. Um, and thank you so much for being on this show. I mean, we're all such huge fans of you. Truly an icon. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> Coming up next, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is keep it. What are we keeping this week, y'all? Mine is a small one, so I'll go first, but it, it has a video homework requirement. So you guys, once I'm done complaining, you're going to have to go watch this video of Marseille Martin schooling everyone and sneezing into a $100 bill. This little girl's hilarious. I want to remind you, she's 15 years old, but my keep it this week goes to everyone who's been trolling Marseille Martin. There's very few people in this world that I think I would kill for, even fewer children. But if I catch any one of you fixing your greasy, greasy little fingers to tweet anything negative about Marseille Martin, our little black girl messiah. I will literally have you gutted. I, I don't care. I love this girl so much. There's so much talent oozing from her, so much spirit. No one's allowed to touch her. Stop making fun of her. They made fun of her wig. They, call, they, they made fun of her wig that she wore for the BET Awards that she had uh, photographed herself in, and they were calling her grandma and just, ma just dragging, dragging this little girl. Granted, the wig looked a little... A little, a little grandma-y. But let this girl figure out what she likes to wear and how she looks and leave her alone. Leave Marseille alone! I will say, if you, like, become a star at age 13 or 14 or 15 nowadays... Or you eight, are, like Marseille yeah, did. Yeah. Right. You are subject to haters. And I, I... Think of yourself as, like, an adult. That happened to me maybe when I was 23. You know? <laughs> yeah. To be a child and have to deal with that, I definitely did not have the coping mechanisms for that. I never have thought about that. Like, there's no such thing as being a child star without hearing the worst people on earth talking about you. Yeah, so. truly. It does go hand in hand. I mean, convincing a walls. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> no, know, right. Remember, yes. remember the Onion article that referred to her as a cunt? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and then the um, reason um, black women will never get off Chrissy Teigen's neck. Because she said that Kavenzene was cocky. <laughs> I did not know that. I don't think I've ever heard that. I'm yeah. just happy I wasn't. I wasn't around and cognizant when when Drew Barrymore was getting the grunt of the hatred from media. Because I don't think I would have been able to stand for that either. Well, to be fair, she was on a lot of coke then, so she probably didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> They're saying what about me? Um, uh, what, what is this video specifically, though? Like, what was Marseille doing? She sneezed into a $100 bill? So Marseille, Marseille takes her, her little camera out, and these, these kids know too much. She takes her camera out, and she goes, like, I'm so sorry that my wig wasn't up to par. And, I, like, she, like, makes a big show of it and acts very dramatic. And then, and then at the very end, she sneezes into a $100 bill and goes, justice for Breonna Taylor. Bye. <laughs> Why is she sneezing into a hundred dollar bill? Because uh, she wants to remind us of the of the wealth that she has accrued. Mm, capitalism. You see, capitalism. <laughs> no name would not be happy with okay, that. Okay, no name. She would not be happy with that. 
Uh, okay, girl. <laughs> in, in our HBO special, didn't you have a keep it where you're like, um, you were like, keep it to J. Cole from, from against No Name? My keep it was to J. Cole for the No Name and J. Cole situation, but that was at a different stage of the situation. And um, maybe now I'm, uh, it's Cole World over here. Maybe it's Cole World over here. I mean, for those of you who don't know, she critiqued, he put out a song criticizing her tone um, for offering him books to read, you know, about capitalism, cultural punishment, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The basics, truly. And then, and, and, then she, and then she responded with a song, uh, Song 33, that was, you know, dragging him. And then she apologized for it later because she didn't mean to distract from the moment, right? Yes, and that's what my keep it was, too. My keep it was to black women rescinding anything. Just let it yes. be out there. It's yes. hip-hop beef. Let it happen. Lo and behold... Miss No Name, who did not want to distract from the moment, now cannot stop tweeting about Beyonce uh, <laughs> and how black buying power is the same as capitalism, which, yes. Um, and this here's my thing. There are a lot of conversations we all need to be having right now as black people. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of new things that we need to be learning about abolishing prisons, you know, um, defunding police departments and Capitalism in general and how, um, you know, black buying power um, within capitalism um, can be just as detrimental to our communities. But if you are just like going to constantly just be like tweeting about Beyonce and then like screenshotting tweets about Beyonce and putting them on your Instagram too, it, it seems like you're less interested in having a conversation and you're more fixated on making the Beyonce hatred a thing. Um, and it seems a little transparent because talking about Beyonce is an easy way to trend. 100%. True, and true. Beyonce is not the only black person engaging in capitalism um, and black buying power. Please, yeah, move this criticism over to Ira. It's more comfortable for me. <laughs> I, I want to see it. Move I am it over. amused by it. Drag or- me. No name, a Chicago artist who has worked very intimately with Chance the Rapper is just totally chill with him dancing in Starburst commercials. Like, just talk about what's around you even. And that kind of proves to me that you care at all about the situation. And let's not forget the tweet that she sent out once that was um, saying, not just white hipsters come to my show, you know, like um, black people shouldn't blame like not having money or, you know, like black death of like, not being able to come see my shows, like they go see Megan the Stallion and um, et cetera. And it's like, it really just seems like you want to be popular then. Also, girl, maybe Meg's more entertaining. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little thing. And also, another thing that's another critique of Beyonce, and then I'll stop with all my little keep it. Uh, Beyonce, the critique of Beyonce's pricing for her tickets for her shows. It's like, no name, if you want black kids to come to your shows, make your tickets cheaper. That also is a situation. Like the same critique that you have, you can apply to yourself instead of just going, throwing, I'm throwing my hands up and I'm quitting rap, which she has done before. Yeah. And listen, I'm not saying Beyonce is beyond reproach, and I'm and I'm also not dragging no name. I definitely appreciate the passion in this moment and getting people to read books and learn more in this era right now. But I also yeah. think that um, there's a difference between reading um, and educating people and just like I don't know, having a bone to pick. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, Stream Song 33, it's still really good. (laughs) It is a bop, actually. (laughs) It's amazing. Maybe Megan should do a remix. Stop Uh, it. (laughs) (laughs) She can hop on the remix. Lewis, what's your keep it? 
Uh, my keep it is for niche musical gay Twitter, but mm. it's also to the album itself. You're going to be surprised I'm about to say this. My keep it is to the Jesse Ware album, What's Your Pleasure? You will remember weeks ago, I told you to listen to Spotlight by Jesse Ware, which is a great yes. uh, kind of lush somewhat danceable song, a sexual song, a sexual, emotional song. Okay, Pitchfork. The entire album, yes. The, <laughs> well, let me say something. She used to be the domain of basically Pitchfork. Like, that's how you yeah. how you found out about Jessie Ware, and yeah. now, like, gay people, or gay men, are finding her more and more, and I'm happy about that. The music is good, but... Like every other fucking album that came out this summer for us, this is being touted as a disco revival. Now, let me say something. Chromatica actually kind of was that. The Dua Lipa album was that. This, to me, is a slightly sped up Sade album, and I am sorry I am put to sleep by this album. Oh, it does my not God. make you fucking move. I did not expect to hear this from you. I thought that you were going to come here literally with Screaming. like half open bottles of poppers talking about this <laughs> album. <laughs> We're all junkies in our own way. Leave it alone. I'm an R&B junkie. The problem is for this album, it's just not danceable enough. To me, mm. it reminds me less of a disco and more like an expensive hotel lobby, which we need those too. I, I, I like having like a, a lightly throbbing beat as I wait for my friend to descend from the elevator or whatever. But just, can you... Can you truly dance to this album? I think you're lying. I think you're lying. You can't dance to save a kiss? Like, kind step into of? my life, read my lips? Is the keep it for the album or for the genre that the album was deemed? I'm very lost. I think it's not what people are saying it is, and I think the album is slightly worse than people are saying it is. Oh, no. So I, I, think there, I think this album it down. is very good. And I, what I would say is that I thought people were overhyping it at first because, you know, the gays were just discovering Miss Jessie Ware and you called it Pitchfork era, like coming from like the Midwest and like Chicago. Mm -hmm. Like I have friends in the Pitchfork realm who were constantly talking about Jessie Ware when she first came out. Shoving them and down I, our throats. And yes. I was like, gotta listen to Jessie Ware. I was like, if you don't, <laughs> chill. Jessie Ware, Katie B. I was like, chill. <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm mostly talking about my friend Oliver Saba. But um, <laughs> I like the album, you know? It, um, Did it, you hear how you said you like the album? I do. Can you, can you bring it to love, though? Maybe not. Well, it's not at love yet because, to be honest, I'm still listening to the Chloe and Halle album. You know? Like, <laughs> I, I, only, I only recently started getting into um, the new Kalani album and also um, Tiana Taylor's The Album, which I think is great, even though it's too damn long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Jesse Ware, I had a very emotional, um, sort of like out-of-body experience to it, like the first two spins I gave to it, but I haven't truly been able to sit with the album in a way that I would want to. But I don't know, it felt very, you know, um, light Donna to me. You know, light Diana, maybe not Donna. Donna is who's, pure disco. Who's who's craving light Donna? Who's crave like like? Why can't we just actually dance? Why well, can't it just be unpretentious bops as opposed to like the movie High Note is light Donna. <laughs> yeah, true. Oh, is, is that what you thought I wanted more of? A colder, a colder, slower Donna. Donna Winter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow. Donna Winter. Gets. Yes. Yeah. It, it, yeah it's close. <laughs> 
close. Yeah, it's like <laughs> she has like kind of a Kate Bush vibe too, where it's mostly about it's more about atmosphere than about the throb of the music. So yeah. anyway, how about this, Lewis? Uh, Put the album down. Don't listen to it. How about that? I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying, hey, gays, let's also, have a conversation about what it is. Yeah. Also, baby, there is hardly any disco on Future Nostalgia. Uh, but like, I- Future Nostalgia is like 80s dance pop. And my whole thing about when people were talking dance about Dance floor disco, fillers, fine. When, I won't call when, that disco. When people yes. were talking about the disco revival and kept talking about Miss Dua Lipa, I was like, she does not sing disco well disco you need you know like i'm a disco hero you know um i, I, I like uh, songs of sweet melodies and, um, and of meaning <laughs> but um that was a whitney houston meme that he reappropriated for his own purposes in case anybody doesn't understand okay <laughs> they know that's what <laughs> i <you>. do <laughs> i would offer that the disco we a song on future nostalgia is cool produced by Stuart price and he has produced better disco sounding songs for kylie and Madonna, like people who could actually do disco, mm. and um, I, that's why I think the best songs on Future Nostalgia are the song "Physical" and the title track. You know, I'm a defender of that. I love yeah. the part of that song that sounds like pop music by M. The song pop music, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, if you can't I, get with this, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, it's that very <laughs> Olivia Newton-John poppy, danceable '80s vibe, but not disco. Very well. Okay, Ira, we have like six seconds. What are you keeping? <laughs> <laughs> My keep it is to. Yet another blackface fiasco. <laughs> Only this time. Keep them coming. I want the blackface back, okay? Get the blackface on my TV. I am watching that. <laughs> uh, Hulu removed an episode of The Golden Girls with a blackface scene in it. Now, to set the scene for you all, this episode is season three. It's called Mixed Blessings. And in the episode, um, Dorothy's son, Michael, plans to wed a much older black woman named Lorraine, played by Rosalind Cash. And Dorothy's critical of the age difference, and Lorraine's family disapproves of their daughter marrying a white man, so the two families attempt to stop the marriage. But when Lorraine's family arrives, Rose and Blanche are testing out a new mud face treatment, and they <laughs> greet the family with their masks still on, and they're like, this is mud on our faces. We're not really black. And I'm sorry. That's comedy. Hilarious. <laughs> and my complaint about this is this is obviously the move of some reactionary white person at Hulu who's seeing the... Um, Tina Fey blackface moment, seeing the community blackface moment, singing God at this point, like episodes of Barney probably have blackface in them. <laughs> um, it's just seeing this and being like, we need to remove this. People are going to be mad about this. And this shows not only a lack of understanding about what people are mad about, it also just shows that like this person either didn't really watch the episode or they're just dumb. <laughs> you know, watch yep. it, and they're dumb. And I gotta say, what, what they what they saw was a gif of this episode, yeah, and immediately thought the worst. Like, oh, we we caught them in the middle of some blackface routine, right? As opposed to, yeah. yeah. And the thing is, this isn't blackface. You have to be able to look at intent, and you also just have to not be a fucking idiot. 
I mean, there's nothing about this that is blackface. And honestly, the removal of the episode from Hulu is embarrassing because what black people actually want is for you to fucking hire us, okay? Put us in writer's rooms and um, maybe then we can make better jokes about race um, and dismantle the white supremacist power structures in Hollywood. We don't need you removing episodes of Golden Girls that aren't actually blackface. Like, it's, it's, it's just dumb, you know? Also, it's an episode that handles racism in such a, like, a unique and multifaceted way. And Golden yes. Girls is a show that black people fucking love. Absolutely love. Most people I know who watch Golden Girls are just my black gay friends. So it's annoying when they're clearing, like, what this does, like you were saying, Ira, is just an unhelpful concession that like loses steam on what we're trying to do what we're trying to say it just trivializes everything it does especially when the ankler just put out a piece on june 12th um that takes a peek into hollywood diversity circa 2020 and Mm -hmm. it basically looks at the corporate structures of the studios and networks that make our shows right and it's like Disney Corporate, Disney Studios, Disney TV, Warner Media, Comcast, NBC Universal, Viacom, it's like Sony. The only diversity is a diversity of people named Alan. <laughs> you know, it is white men largely named Alan, other white men, uh, white women, couple Asians, um, you know, and like maybe one uh, or two black women in publicity. At some networks, you know, but like it is just pointing out the fact that the way to fix shit like this is we need to be talking about the real power structures in Hollywood. And that's not just people writing the shows. That is people who are able to greenlight shows. Those are people who are deciding whether or not black content is relatable on TV, you know, and Mm -hmm. if your executive suite is all white men. They're not going to be producing content that is good for black people, for queer people, for women, for trans people, for anyone, you know? And it's constantly counting on um, the benevolence of (laughs) rich white moderates to maybe do us a solid. And that's really not going to get us anywhere. Mm -hmm. I think we can agree I'm a Blanche, right? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe some Sophia. Maybe some Sophia. Yeah. I could say you're a Blanche. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very bothered. Yes. All four of them Emmy winners, of course. Although I will say that you have a bit of um, Dorothy in you. I'm Dorothy. Oh, oh, no. What am I saying? Of course I have some Dorothy in me. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Sometimes you can get a little angry. The stern. (laughs) It's the stern in you. The language of my forehead and neck alone. That's some Zbornak gurry. <laughs> Don't interrupt Lewis's tea time. He will bite your head <laughs> off. Anyway, that's our show this week. <laughs> Thank you to Adam Rippon and Laomi for joining us. We'll see you next time for more Keep It. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian for filming and editing our video content every week. Vacations are always good. 
sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador.